Let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we are grateful that you brought us here. We're thankful for the panel that you've brought here and for the good work that they're doing in each of their fields. We pray that you would bless them, that they would be a blessing. We pray that tonight you would help us to listen well, to think well, to glorify you and love you with our minds, and that uh, we would learn something tonight, something about your grandeur and majesty that you have embedded in the world. Lord, would you bless our time in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before I bring the panelists up, I want to ask you a question, a question to discuss around your tables. And here's the question. How can science help you love God more? So go ahead and discuss that around your tables, and we'll bring the panelists up in just a few moments. Before introducing them, I wanted to just point out Drew Matney, who has been instrumental. He has uh, worked very hard to put this panel together, and he has been the champion of having a first Wednesday focused on science. And so I asked him to help moderate the discussion tonight. And so, Drew, we are profoundly, we are deeply grateful for you and the work that you've done. Would you give him a hand? And um, Drew, would you take it from here? All right. Yeah, so um, for those of you who were in, uh, in church a couple weeks ago, I gave the All of Life interview, and so you'll, you're probably familiar with uh, who I am. But for those of you who weren't, my name is Drew Matney, and I am a, uh, a doctoral student at ASU in the Aerospace Engineering Department. And the work that I do um, is in collaboration with the Air Force, and I'm working on um, new aircraft technologies. And... Um, that I can't talk about. <laughs> so, yeah, so, um, so yeah, so I guess that, that's me. And so I thought we'd start out tonight by just uh, having the panelists introduce themselves. Um, so something I like to say is that we are just very um, blessed tonight to have such a, a distinguished uh, group of people here to talk about these questions that we all have and just to address the issue of uh, science and Christianity. So uh, with that, I guess um, we can start off by having the panelists talk about the work that they do at ASU, as well as their background in science and um, their religious background as well. So uh, I don't know who wants to start us off. Go ahead. All right, Paul. <laughs> I'm the f is this on? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, I'm the first one in line. My name is Paul Scohan. Um, I'm a research professor at Arizona State University in the School of Earth and Space Exploration. I am by discipline an observational astronomer, um, but also uh, I dabble in some of the stuff this guy does. I'm in developing technology and stuff for uh, high-altitude suborbital um, deployment and also for uh, putting instruments into space on space-based observatories and rockets and things like that as well. Um, a lot of what I study is um, the physics of star and planet formation, um, which is a very complex subject and can bring all kinds of interesting perspectives on the universe to the fore. And uh, my background is I am Roman Catholic and have been so since birth, um, which made me quite a minority in England. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but that was okay. Um, I got to learn all about all kinds of Polish, Italian, and Irish uh, cultural things from the uh, Catholic schools that I attended there. But... Uh, so that's what I'm bringing to the table. Uh, good evening. 
My name is Anne Catherine Jones, and I'm a faculty member in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. Um, I studied chemistry and mathematics before I went on to start working on more biological problems. So I'm. And I have a really quiet voice. <laughs> it's really lousy for teaching. Um, so I'm all over the map in terms of science. Um, in terms of my research interests, I actually study how metals help chemical reactions occur faster with an aim to trying to produce renewable fuels that don't contribute to climate change. Um, in terms of a, a faith background, I grew up in the the deep south of the US in the Bible Belt, <laughs> as perhaps the only person I knew who wasn't Baptist. <laughs> um, and when I moved to the UK, I actually um, found myself drawn to um, Quaker meeting, where I, I joined the Quaker um, faith. Uh, so that it's particularly distressing to me that I also worked on an Air Force project. <laughs> <laughs> Um, those who know anything about Quakers know why that's distressing. But um, I rationalized that with myself in knowing that I was trying to stop climate change and the money that went to me went to not producing weapons. <laughs> uh, my name is uh, Scott Bingham, and uh, I'm uh, a faculty member. Well, I'm, I'm not sure faculty member. Some people treat me that way, some don't. But... Uh, I, I'm in the, uh, my faculty group is, uh, in the School of Life Sciences is genomics and evolutionary biology. Uh, I spend a lot more time thinking about genomics, which is something about DNA, which is the alphabet that we all have in our systems that actually tells us who we are and, and does what we, what we do. Um, uh, I came to faith uh, after I came to science many years later. Thank you, thank you to my wife who asked me to go to uh, her Baptist church with her. And uh, from a, uh, I went from a, uh, uh, a thinking that, oh, I just want to go for the, the uh, educational enjoyment and, and uh, knowledge that I might gain to actually it really grabbed me, okay, and accepted Christ as my Savior. Um, one thing that I'd like to get out of you, what, that I'd like you to know tonight is that uh, the group up here uh, represents a bunch of, of scientists who... Uh, Tend to tend to live in a critical world amongst themselves. Okay, science science tends to self-criticize us extremely. You know, it's it's a it's amazing. Uh, and uh, and so uh, when a group of scientists actually have a a uh, a thought that's that's uniform or that actually comes out, it, it's it actually means something. And it might be a good idea to actually say, well, maybe we should actually think about that a little bit. Uh, and that's somewhat unusual because most of the time we just spend our times criticizing other scientists and being criticized. Um, so, uh, and, and am, I, am I not right, sir? <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, <laughs> he's actually my, my ultimate boss. So, <laughs> way up there, though, not, not nearby. So, I'll, I'll finish by saying that, uh, and I really didn't mention uh, uh, where I go to church. I go to the, the spring in Tempe. Good evening. I'm Barry Ritchie. I want to thank you for the opportunity to come uh, join you tonight. Uh, my uh, research specialty is uh, experimental subatomic physics. That's the boundaries between high-energy physics and nuclear physics. Uh, the particular area that I'm interested in is trying to understand the excitations of the, uh, the excited states, if you will, of the protons and neutrons that make up atomic nuclei. About a century ago, 
uh, physicists were trying to understand the makeup of the atom by looking at its excited states. And most of you who had physical science in elementary school or junior high school remember looking at the, the excited states of atoms and so forth. But uh, any system that's made up of a composite, any system that's a composite of objects can have excited states. And the protons and neutrons in atomic nuclei are uh, objects that are made up of three quarks. And so one can look at the excited states uh, of the proton and neutron to learn about how uh, those objects are put together. Uh, the energies involved are about a billion times different, but uh, it's, it's roughly the same type, type of thing. So a century later, we're essentially looking at a much smaller system. Uh, most of my time, however, is, is, is spent not pretending to be a scientist, but uh, actually being an administrator. Uh, about 20, I'm finishing up my 30th year at ASU. Uh, about uh, 20 years ago, gosh, it has been that long, about 20 years ago, I was asked to become an associate chair of what was then the Department of Physics and Astronomy. Uh, then I became chair of the Department of Physics and Astronomy. That was when Paul was still in, in my department. Uh, I went to the West Campus to be uh, dean of the new College of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences there for a while. Uh, and my day job now is... Uh, being vice provost, vice provost for academic personnel at ASU. Um, my faith background is I've been a lifelong Lutheran. Uh, my forebears, believe it or not, I've got a name like Richie, but my forebears actually were Swiss German. Uh, their last name was Richie. Uh, and they uh, settled in a place in North Carolina after the Mennonites ran them out of Pennsylvania. And uh, intermingled and interbred with uh, Scottish R-I-T-C-H-I-E's, and English R-I-C-H-I-E's, and so it's a genealogical nightmare, but we helped, we helped found the first Lutheran church in North Carolina in the 1700s, and I grew up within six miles of that church, and so uh, uh, it is a, a steeped part of, of my background. I find that I automatically see things from a Lutheran perspective. Um, as a, uh, a scientist, I find... Uh, that a lot of the things I liked about being a Lutheran are reflected in, in this lawful universe uh, that nonetheless speaks of grace. And so uh, that's my background. All right, thank you guys. All right, so at this point, I think we'll start um, addressing the, the five questions that are gonna carry us through the first part of tonight. Is that right? Are we gonna bring those up uh, on screen? Okay. All right, so first of all, the Bible claims that miracles occur. As a scientist and person of faith, what do you think the word miracle means? And can you as a scientist believe in the miracles recorded in the Bible and still be a person who believes in the laws of science as well? Do you believe miracles are still possible today? Right, so okay. uh, I'm, Barry, I'm happy you to start with that. Uh, you know, I think, uh, spoiler alert, I think the answer is yes all the way. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Let me, let me define miracle first, since that was the first question. And uh, I actually uh, uh, have taught uh, an adult class at my church off and on for 20 years, and we actually did a, a study once where we talked about this. And the definition that we used there, and that doesn't mean that, that any of my colleagues here would, would agree with it, but the definition we used there is that it's an intervention by God in the natural order of things that is out of the ordinary, conspicuous, and of religious significance. So uh, if, if you try to unpack that definition, I think the first thing to recognize is that 
in, in, certainly in the Hebrew scriptures, and I would argue also in the New Testament, uh, there is not this Western focus on natural, supernatural. Uh, it is all God's universe. Uh, the, uh, the natural function of the universe is God acting uh, as a faithful, reliable uh, organizer of this universe. It is not a deistic universe where the laws were set forth and, and then God walks away. God is responsible in all of those things. And so uh, that said, there are a lot of things, if, if we look at the miracles of Exodus and so forth, uh, those are things that in some cases have natural explanations, but they occurred at propitious times. Uh, we had a visitor here a, a year or so ago who was the uh, distinguished lecturer in the Department of Physics, uh, Colin Humphreys, who wrote a book called The Miracles of Exodus. And in it, what he tried to show was that many of those miracles, in fact, are essentially uh, natural things that happened at the right time. But the important part of the, the statement I said a moment ago is the out of the ordinary. Uh, the resurrection is something that is out of the ordinary. You can't say that this is something that happened naturally. Uh, you can say that it's, it, it is an act by God within time. Uh, and it certainly had, it certainly was conspicuous and certainly had religious significance. And so as a person of faith, I believe that God is not restricted to working through the natural causes that he normally uses, but can in fact uh, intervene to uh, alter uh, the natural order of things on occasion. Uh, as a scientist and a person of faith, I believe that all things considered, all things being equal, uh, a natural explanation is the one to be preferred. But in the absence of a natural explanation, when something is out of the ordinary, uh, conspicuous and of religious significance, uh, as a person of faith, I don't rule that out being a miracle. Uh, it, it's remarkable that sometimes when you hear people who are not people of faith, or let me be more blunt, when you hear atheists speak about miracles, uh, they act as if they're rare. Uh, the reality is in, in all cultures and in all times, people speak of events that are out of the ordinary, conspicuous, and of religious significance. Uh, Craig Keener had a, a book about a year and a half ago, which is a two-volume study of miracles. And he said the thing that, that really most impressed him was as he looked in all cultures today, uh, many people speak of miracles happening. Uh, some of you... Uh, may be able to, to speak of miracles that have happened to you. They may be things, because they're of religious significance to you, they may be your things that just applied to you. And so I, I do not think that it's, that it's um, inconsistent to say that a scientist who is a person of faith can, can uh, believe that God can act, first of all, through the laws of nature to do things uh, at the right time but also in special times and in special occasions acting in, in ways that are out of the ordinary, conspicuous, and of religious significance. Hey, can I re remind the panelists just to hold that mic up really close? Well, I hope that worked. Was everybody able yeah. to hear that? I mean, yeah, you've got a uh, booming oh, lion okay. of a voice, All right. so it worked. <laughs> Go ahead, next question. All right, cool. Yeah, so let's, uh, actually, before we move on to the next question, is there anything um, that you guys would like to add? How can you top that? <laughs> Remember, he said I was his boss. 
All right, so next question. Um, what does science teach you about God, and how does it influence the practice of your faith? What do you think faith teaches you about science, and how does it affect the practice of your science? I'll jump in on that one. Um, what I do for a living um, is I get the privilege of trying to understand what the universe outside of our terrestrial sphere looks like and works like. And in the course of my academic training and my subsequent career, I have to tell you that the more that I learn about the universe around us, the word that jumps to mind the most is elegance. That the universe itself is constructed in such a way and is subject to physical laws that we understand from our terrestrial experiences, from our terrestrial development. Um, we have been blessed with a construct that we call mathematics that allows us to describe very accurately the way the universe both here on the earth and elsewhere, works in wonderful elegance. And when you learn the laws and the structure and the way that the different laws, the laws of gravitation, the laws of electromagnetism work, the relationships are very simple. The, the fact, if, if they were as completely random as some people would have you believe, they would be anything but simple, anything but elegant. And I think the more that we learn about the structure and the fabric and the development and evolution of the universe around us, the more it impresses upon me that there is a design behind it, that there is a, an elegance and an infrastructure that was put into place from the first moment of the universe to where we are today. So that's, that's been my experience with this. You remember in uh, Jurassic Park when Alan Grant uh, saw these little dinosaur tracks that, that the egg was broken and uh, the little dinosaurs went away even though they weren't supposed to have been born because all the dinosaurs were female? He said, life will find a way. And he should have said, I think, uh, what a plan that God designed, but he didn't because that would have been against his character. He was an atheist scientist, but... Um, that's what I would have said. Uh, and so what I, what, all, with that introduction, I, I would like to say that things, in, things that life, from the life science perspective seems really complex. A cell itself has got thousands and thousands of proteins. And where does the information for all of those thousands and thousands of proteins come from? Well, it comes from that, that code that's in us. And uh, if, if you think about it, how does that code get to be in the right place at the right time? How does it change? How does it, because we know that things change. Um, and, and the answer is similar to what, what Paul was just talking about in that things are elegantly simple and it just shows you that there is a design behind something. Somebody had a really good idea and I think I know who it was. Because in a sense, what you've got with all of those proteins, you, you, you don't really need to take a lot of time to change your cells so that you actually uh, do what you need to do. In other words, uh, instead of uh, that, all that alphabet needing to change one letter at a time, which can take millions and millions of years, cells have done something which I call uh, use what you've already got. That's, that's, that's my definition. I don't think it's going to hit the, the, 
the, the New York Times or anything like that. So, but what happens in a cell is that, that there's information taken from one, si one place, another place, and it's all put together. So that we, in a sense, have about 30,000 different pieces of that alphabet that, that actually dictate what our proteins are. Okay. A banana, which was a big joke back when all this was determined, has about 30,000 uh, pro protein encoding regions of, of its DNA. Okay. So what's the difference between us and a banana? Well, there's obviously quite a bit. And a lot of that is how things are put together later. Uh, those 30,000 different pieces of that alphabet have probably hundreds of thousands of different proteins made from them. Okay? So things, it's not all in the information. It's all in the plan and how that information is being used. And so I see God in that. Uh, and I, I don't really see any other way that you can, you can do that. It's, it's just an, an incredible situation. I've got lots more examples, but I think that probably people would go to sleep if I said anything more. So. Yeah, just following on, uh, the, the thing that I, I mean, I'm looking at the first question there, and it says, what does science teach you about God? And if, if, if you're a person of faith and you believe that, that God created this universe, you expect that creation to somehow reflect uh, the creator. Uh, I'm reminded that uh, you know, Steve Jobs thought it was so important that you know, every piece of his uh, product uh, reflected incredible attention to design. And so following on to, to what uh, these, these two have said, I, I think we, if we expect that to reflect uh, the creator, uh, what, we, what we see, is, as, as they've noted, is that we have a, a universe that is intelligible, that we can understand. Uh, Keith Ward talks about the, the interplay of, of chance and necessity, necessity in the sense that we have natural laws uh, that are reliable, but also uh, chance in that things aren't mechanistic necessarily, that, that things aren't preordained, that there can be options, there can be an openness to history. Um, there's another thing that, that um, uh, George Ellis, who's a cosmologist, and Nancy Murphy wrote a book called The Moral Understanding of the Universe. And they said that it, particularly if you look in the animal kingdom and, and particularly at humans, there's another facet that the universe reveals, and it's this idea of kenosis, the idea of sacrifice, the idea of giving up your life for something else, the way animals will protect their young, the way we protect our young or even fight for our country or, or whatever, uh, with apologies to the Quakers. Um, <laughs> you know, there is this kenosis idea, this, this self-emptying thing. And so, uh, and, and the, the final thing I think we look at is that, that science teaches us in, in, in terms of painting this picture of God is that I've always, when, when I talk, when I would teach mechanics and so forth, I would sometimes, in talking with students, tell them that, uh, remind them that physics works best when there are no people in it. <laughs> that if you bring people in there, they begin doing stuff. And so you, you can talk about how a ball drops, but if a person's there, he might grab it. You don't know whether he will or not. And so I think that what this picture of a universe gives us is that we have, first of all, a creator who is intelligent, and seeks to be known. Uh, we have a, uh, a creator who is dependable, reflecting the, the necessity in the universe. 
but one that also believes in, in grace, in the openness of our lives to respond uh, in chance. Uh, I think that this idea of kenosis shows itself in, in Jesus' self-emptying love uh, in terms of coming to serve and him calling on us to be servants as well. Um, and it also points to, to, I think, the realization that we are more than just protons and neutrons and particles, that there is volition, that there is will. There are those things that are reflections of the creator that, that we have. And so I think that's, that's the kind of feedback I think um, science can give about God. Uh, you know, the, the other part of the question I guess we go to next is, is how it works the other way, so we can talk about that one, I guess. Yes, anyone want to address the second part of the question, what does uh, faith teach you about science? And I guess uh, something I would throw in there is that we've talked a lot about, you know, um, this going one direction where science teaches you something about God, you know, the, the rational intelligibility of the universe and whatnot, speaking to uh, the fact that the creator um, is... Um, a rational being of you know immense intelligence, um, but something uh, that I think is really interesting, and I'm not a historian of science, but um, from people who are, I think there's an understanding that science really emerged out of Europe in um, 15th or 16th uh, century, and so um, as, as I understand it, is that uh, the emergence of science was due to uh, the monotheistic religions. Um, emphasizing that um, this universe is the product of a rational being and as such should be observable by us and should uh, behave rationally and, um, and it should be uh, repeatable. And so I think that that speaks also to, you know, what faith teaches you about science and that the uh, origin of science kind of uh, finds its source in the understanding that the universe has a creator and that that creator is, is a rational being as well. And anything you guys want to add? Okay, so I'll take the flip question then. <laughs> what, what does faith, um, how does it then influence your, your practice of science? Um, I'm also not a linear thinker, something else students find really frustrating, so I think I can do both directions of the question at the same time. <laughs> um, I like to think that... Um, Groups of people, when they come together and they share a way of thinking, they, they develop norms and rules for how they think, right? And we call those paradigms. And the, the paradigm that scientists operate within, they call the scientific method. And there are certain rules, and there are things you have to believe, and that's how you do science. And religions come together, and they develop what they call faith, right? And that's the agreed way of thinking about problems. And then there are certain tenets within that faith. Um, and one of the ways that I see Christian faiths and, and other faiths um, thinking similarly is all agreeing that you can't know everything. Um, and that in particular, the human brain is not the God. <laughs> uh, and that to me is very important to feed back into the scientific method and vice versa. To remember that you can answer many, many, many questions, but you can't answer all of them. And I find it very helpful to remember that there are many things I don't understand about God, and there are many things that I don't understand about science. And it's important to keep thinking and to keep asking the questions, but it's also important to be patient and realize you cannot possibly wrap your head around everything.
And can I actually ask you to, could you give some examples of some questions that can't be answered uh, by science and maybe some questions that can't be answered by faith? Well, the obvious one in this context, scientists can't answer the question whether God exists or not, right? This is a question of faith. It is absolutely impossible for science to approach. And I think that conflict comes when you try to bring that impossible question into science or vice versa. Right? No, well, I, I would add too that, that, that uh, as Anne has outlined, I mean, uh, there are elements that are of value. Uh, well, that's, that's even giving the, giving the game away. Um, when you put people into a universe, uh, you bring the idea of, of value, uh, significance, purpose, all of those things come into uh, a universe that has people in it, just as, as God is the author of significance, purpose, and value. And so uh, in terms of, of what faith teaches us about science, uh, there is the, the humility aspect that Anne spoke about. Um, some of you may be old enough, I doubt it, but, but some of you may be old enough to remember that there was a, a series called The Ascent of Man uh, that Jacob Bernowski was the host of. He had written a book called The Ascent of Man. It was way better than Cosmos the first time, <laughs> way better than Cosmos the second time. But there was an episode where he talks about the uncertainty principle, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, and the, and the title of that segment was called uh, The Principle of Tolerance. And uh, he talked about how, you know, the, the fact that at, at, at the subatomic level there is this indeterminacy, or if you like, tolerance in the sense of plus or minus, uh, within which we, we can't know. And how that has taught him as a scientist that anytime one purports to be a, a, an absolutely sure of something, one is being unscientific and one is being dangerous. Uh, and he ended that segment, if you recall, uh, standing in the ash pits at Auschwitz uh, amongst the ashes of his relatives who had died in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And he reaches down into that muck and picks up um, a handful of that muck and talks about how we must you know, have this humility. We must have this uh, understanding that, that we can't know everything absolutely uh, or else we perish. All right, great. Uh, so let's go on to the third question. All right, what prompts many atheists in the scientific community to claim that science and religion are incompatible or even in conflict? Do you think those claims make any valid points? How have you personally dealt with such claims? And how does one minister to friends and family who struggle with religious faith for those reasons? The, the joke that Barry was just saying there was that there's no one at ASU like that. Um, <clears throat> Um, the scientific community, by definition and by selection, is full of way too many A-type personalities. Um, but seriously, that, that is because of the nature of the way the scientific community works. Um, you have to have, shall we say, a healthy ego to be able to survive in that world because you have to continually re-justify your very existence, not only to your peers, but to your boss, to the funding agency, to your kids. 
um, on a regular basis. And so you absolutely have to believe that you really know what's going on. But the very point that Anne just made is absolutely right. That while you may think you know the best thing since sliced bread to answer a particular problem, it is entirely possible, nay, probable, that you are not actually right at all. Um, and that there is a certain amount of um, passing through the crucible that you have to go through to uh, refine those ideas down to something that is testable, identifiable, and provable through a variety of different mechanisms, not just one. And so there's a lot built into the way the scientific community that endorses or fosters that kind of thinking. But the, the issue that is being put forward by this question is can you think about science and religion as being compatible? And I think the other issue that Anne raised there was very, very right, that there are some aspects of the universe that necessarily won't be subject to description through scientific method that they approach the intangibles that Barry mentioned there about the nature of the human spirit, about the nature of our mission as God's uh, creation in this universe. All of us have, for one reason or another, a particular path, a particular track, a particular purpose that we live out in our mortal coil here on the earth. And a lot of that is not describable by a scientific approach. Um, there are aspects of what we try to do, um, what we try to learn, that are influenced by the skills, by the talents that the good Lord has given us. And we, by using those to the best of the ability that we can, using things like the constructs of mathematics, the uh, lessons of science that we have learned as a race from hundreds and thousands of years ago, um, to try and describe and better understand the creation that we have been blessed with, I think that does the good Lord great credit, and it is part of one of the things that we have been told to do. Um, the parable of the talents on the part of Jesus was that we should take what we have been given and make more of it with the uh, skills that we have been given. And I think that's, that's where a lot of what we try to do as people, what we try to do as scientists leads us. It is to use the skills that we've been given to try and glorify the good Lord. Okay, I won't speak to anyone at ASU who falls in the category of this question, but I, I once worked in, a, in an institution, not ASU, <laughs> um, with a very, very famous atheist <laughs> named Peter Atkins, a professor of chemistry who basically argued that in order to be a successful scientist, you had to not be faithful. And if you were a really, really good scientist, it became absolute. That, that's his argument. Um, and my first response to this question would be, I don't think most people, most scientists, agree with Peter Atkins. Um, and when sociologists, the people who study people, study scientists, they find my position to be correct. Most scientists don't believe faith and science are incompatible. Now, the flip of this question, I, again, I'm never linear. I like to think about the opposite. <laughs> the flip of this question is, do people of faith 
believe it's impossible to be scientists, right? And I think it's important to ask both halves of this question because my answer to this question um, again comes from thinking about how the two groups of people, if we want to think of them as separate groups of people at the moment, think. Scientists, in order to be part of the club, follow the scientific method. And as Paul has said, it's me. <laughs> the general assumption, the starting place, is that everything is wrong until you demonstrate otherwise. So you live in a culture of constantly assuming everything is wrong. And I think it's very difficult for people to turn that off and say, I take on faith that this is right. right? So there's a fundamental difference in the way of thinking that is, I think, at the heart of the difficulty in the two groups, if we're still making camp A and camp B, talking to one another. Right? So although scientists intuitively want to say there is no conflict, there is no inherent impossibility of being faithful and being scientific, if the two groups come at thinking about problems in ways that are difficult to reconcile, you will then start to develop animosity. And I think this, this tension between faith and science comes from thinking about problems differently, uh, not talking to one another, and then disagreeing without talking. <laughs> so um, for those who don't know very much about Quaker governance, Quakers make all decisions by unanimous consent of the entire Quaker meeting. It's absolutely as painful as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> and can take years. <laughs> The classic example being deciding whether or not to excommunicate, not our word, but the sort of lay word, um, Richard Nixon, who was a Quaker, you might remember, <laughs> and also sent a lot of people to the Vietnam War. Inherent conflict for people who believe in a testament of peace. Uh, years they took deciding whether or not to excommunicate him. <laughs> but an important point of this, this question to me is the fact that scientists and people of faith have to communicate with one another. And they're not in conflict as long as there's communication going on and there's a discussion, an honest discussion, and an honest attempt to understand the mindset of the other party. And I think both parties are guilty of not actually trying to understand the mindset of the other. And that's, I think, why things often end up in conflict. They didn't excommunicate him, by the way. <laughs> I, I I'd just like to say something briefly about the last point here. How does one minister to friends and family who struggle with religious belief for those reasons? Uh, I'm reminded of, uh, of Paul in Athens when uh, he spoke to the so-called learned people that he began with points of commonality and that if you have someone in your family who is, is, a, is a staunch uh, naturalist believing that everything came about naturally and, and the, the science says it all, that find some points of commonality first, and then it becomes less an argument between, well, I'm right, you're right, than perhaps uh, an argument about, well, how did all this get started and who was really responsible for starting it, rather than the actual points of, I don't believe this, you believe that. So find some commonality would be my, my, my thought. I think this discussion needs a note of cynicism, so I, I guess I'll inject yeah. that. <laughs> Um, again, I, I've, I've spent all my life in academia. Um, as, as Anne rightly said a moment ago, 
the, the number of people who believe that science and religion are in hopeless conflict amongst scientists is on the order of 15%, one five, you know, one in seven. Uh, there was an event uh, last week, the weeks are so long, I think it was last week, uh, where a historian of scientists made a statement that no, his, no credible historian of science believes that there has ever been a war between science and religion. Now take those two things together, that maybe one in seven scientists believes that science and religion are at war with each other. No credible historian believes they are. Why is it that you get this view? And the reason you get this view is it's entertaining. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, Fact is fiction and TV reality, you know, as the song goes. I mean, it's, it's the, the idea that, that somehow we will get you to watch us if we can set up uh, something uh, controversial about it. Uh, and I don't care whether it's the Affordable Care Act. I don't care whether it's uh, science and religion. Uh, people will pay to watch a fight. And so I think a, a lot of what we see in um, these with with the new atheism and so forth is primarily entertainment. Someone out there asked me if I like debates, and I said no. I like discussions, but uh, frequently debates have far more heat than light. Uh, you learn almost nothing from some of them. Uh, it is scoring points and trying to win more than trying to understand each other. And so I, I think that we are driven by a media and entertainment culture that wants to see uh, a blood sport. And so I think that's part of the reason uh, that this conflict is, is voiced. I mean, it, with Peter Atkins, I mean, some of the things that he says, you wonder why anyone would take him seriously. And yet both you and I know about it, in principle because of chemistry, but, but just the same. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. <laughs> I've taken Peter's lecture <laughs> as a PhD student. You know, I feel compelled right now to break from format a little bit and uh, just lead us in a time of, of prayer because I think what Barry brought up is very important and it's systemic and it uh, creeps into every aspect of public life to where people are not listening, they're not having good discussions, but we're being entertained uh, by a lack of love, by, by, by a fight. And um, uh, I want to pray uh, for that and pray for just a flourishing and respectful dialogue in general. So I'm going to lead us in prayer, and we'll continue going, but I just feel like in this moment we need to pray about that. God, we just, um, we are uh, thankful for the many image bearers, for the people that you have made in your image that we get to interact with, and we live in a very um, uh, differentiated world where there are people who have different opinions and whether they be political or uh, in a particular scientific field or any number of things. And we as a people have uh, sinned against you by uh, being entertained by uh, hostility and entertained by fights and entertained and pursuing uh, the, the fringes for the sake of entertainment. God, we pray that we 
would be people who love the other as an image bearer and can listen well. And we, God, I just pray for the church that we would not be known as the people who like to, uh, to stir up controversy for controversy's sake, but the people who are known by the self-giving love of Christ. And so, God, we just thank you for Barry bringing this up right now and ask that it would be uh, impressed upon us in our engagement with all aspects of public life and our life with our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and kick it to the next question there. All right, cool. um, all right so uh, how do you reconcile the biblical accounts of creation in Genesis with scientific theories about the origin of the universe and the origin of humanity, since some who read the biblical accounts believe the scientific theories conflict with these accounts, uh, specifically looking at topics such as the Big Bang, um, evolution, and uh, the six days of creation. Let me just say first, you're getting into the meat of the whole process here now. I'm not going to say anything else. I was hoping maybe the physicists would, uh, would begin by talking about the age of the earth and things like that. And then, and then maybe the biologists can come in a little bit with, uh, with the humanity part. Does that, does that sound okay? Uh, well, you get us started, Paul. Uh, uh, okay, I'm not, I'm not sure if we've got the fair part of that, but we'll see. Um, I was actually having a discussion with a gentleman before uh, we got going here this evening about this, uh, the, the body of evidence that goes along with our view of the history of the universe. And uh, there's, there's so many different um, viewpoints about the, the, the story of creation. Um, you can get down into um, discussions about what those first six days of creation, as testified in the Bible, um, really meant. Um, the fact that the first three days um, were defined as days, but the sun wasn't created in that um, account until the fourth day, so there was no definition of a day before that point. So those days could be as long as you would like them to be. Um, so that's just getting into the chronology of it, right? Um, but the, the view that we see, or the, or the things that we have learned about the universe in terms of the scale of it, um, a lot of it is rooted in just simple observational physics. Um, when we look out at the universe, many of you have heard of things like the expansion of the universe and the Hubble law and things like that, that when we look out at the universe, we look in all directions and all parts of the universe are apparently expanding away from us. And so that can give you a somewhat geocentric view of the universe, that we must be the very center. The other way of looking at that is the principle that the entire universe itself is expanding in and of itself. And so the nature of that, if you could imagine taking a, a, a party balloon and drawing little galaxies on the surface of that balloon and then blowing that balloon up, if you sat on any one of those little galaxies on the surface of that sphere every other galaxy would appear to be moving away from you. So there is no actual common center within the fabric that is the surface of that balloon, but the universe as a whole is expanding. And so that's the, one of the physical models or cartoons that we use to try and explain that. But the fact that we see that the universe is expanding in that way gives us a time after which, when did it not expand? When did it if you wound the clock backwards, 
was there a point where it all came back together again? And this is, of course, the idea that was conceived and then became, through various levels of sophistication, what we now understand to be the Big Bang Theory. And the idea behind all of that is rooted in the origin of the fabric of space and time. And you saw recently this announcement about how there's a, an experiment that was put together at the South Pole looking for um, oscillations in the fabric of space-time and looking, at, um, looking for a particular signature that had been predicted as many as 20 or 25 years ago by the guys who'd come up with the theory for how the universe had gone through this incredibly quick expansion right after that initial moment of creation. And they found it. They found that signature that um, had been predicted 25 years before. And that was an exercise in the scientific method. There was a hypothesis that was in place, and it made a prediction. And the scientific method then takes you through the process of making the kinds of observations that were necessary. And it took that long to figure out how to make those kinds of observations to build the technology to do it. And they spotted it. And that was why there was so much hoopla about that, because it really did um, go a great distance to uh, confirm how the Big Bang itself um, happened in, and expanded in such a dramatic way. But how do I reconcile that with the Genesis story? Um, from my perspective, the Genesis story is a sequence of things that happened to make the universe as we understand it today. It attributes the formation of those things, the creation of those things, to um, God. And I believe that that part of it is, in fact, um, true. But to take it as a completely literal description of what happened, I don't think that that's actually necessary because it attributes the relationship between us as the created to our creator and attributes that there is design, there is purpose, and there is architecture behind the universe that we observe around us today. And so I don't think that the two are actually in conflict at all. And again, as I've said a little earlier, um, I think the fact that we have been given the intelligence, the mental capacity, the construct of mathematics and the uh, skills necessary to look around the universe to see the structure and complexity of it but to see the simplicity behind it is a blessing in and of itself and I think that that is what we enjoy by using all of the skills that the Lord has given us and so that would be my response to that. I'll say a few words about uh, uh, my interpretation, which some of you may definitely not agree with, and some of you may say, oh, okay. Um, from the human perspective, uh, the physical man has been calculated to be about 150,000 years old. Uh, and how does that done? Well, anthropology does a lot of it by looking at bones, okay? There are TV show bones. They actually do know a lot about bones. Um, I don't, but someone does. Um, also by some pretty sophisticated calculations from genetics, okay? Uh, look at, looking at all the populations today, how long does it take 
uh, given a certain mutation frequency to get back to, a, how long does it take for everybody to get back to the same alphabet? Okay, so in a, in a sense, that's, that's, it's a calculation. So it's not, a, it's not all that accurate. It's that pretty accurate, but it's not 150,000 exactly. Okay, uh, but that's the estimate at the moment, okay? Uh, evidence from anthropology, as far as I can tell, takes the man that we would consider this a more spiritual man at about 30,000 years ago. Okay, now how, what's spiritual? Well, from what I can tell, a spiritual means there are rituals, there's burial, there's art, there's, there's conversation, there's communication. Uh, and so, but 30,000, if you try to reconcile that with a biblical perspective, that's more like 10,000 as far as I can tell. So, so uh, you know, the Genesis story is if you do all of those types of uh, uh, chronologies, it's about 10,000 years. So there's a stretch there. So in, in my mind, there's a difference between the physical man and the spiritual man. Uh, and how do you actually reconcile that with, with the Genesis story? Well, some people will reconcile it by saying that it's just pure allegory, that, uh, that uh, uh, there's a, it's the everyman tale where Adam and Eve uh, represent us. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Others will say that it's, uh, it's archetypal, which is very similar to the allegory as far as I can, I can see. Others will say that, well, uh, perhaps Adam and Eve were chosen from a group of people that existed at that time. That's a little bit more of a literal reading so that there's actually a physical Adam and Eve. I know that there are organizations out there of Christian scientists who take no position on that. You, you, you are, it's up to you to decide what you'd like to, like to think. But those are th the types of positions that are taken. I myself, uh, in, I have a, a very much of, a, of an evangelical background. Uh, I prefer to think that, that there was a person or two people who God re revealed himself to. I don't think that that person was 150,000 years old. I think he was much younger and in agreeable with, with the creation story. Uh, however, I don't know that that person's name was Adam. Uh, and, and, uh, and so I think that there, there are some differences between what science tells you and what is, is in, the, in the creation story. But I think you have to read Genesis not as a book of science, not as a, and, and not necessarily as a history book. It's a book of theology. And that uh, when you do that and know who it was written for, the time it was written, uh, who wrote it, why did they write it? Uh, it? It's an incredible story, and one that, that deserves uh, certainly uh, much respect uh, in the scientific community as well as the faith community. I think one thing that, that uh, has really struck me over the past number of years is um, I think I'm beginning to outgrow some of the ideas that I had uh, that were uninformed by the understanding of, of what the ancient Near East was like. Uh, we, we talk about um, uh, the literal uh, reading of, of scriptures as, as if we think this was always a text. Uh, we're talking about uh, histories, stories, what, whatever you want to call them, uh, that probably predate writing to start off with. So it is an oral 
tradition that's handed down in an oral culture that values oral tradition, painstaking about how it's put together. But one, it's important to say, well, why did they, why did they go to that trouble? What was it they felt that was important about uh, that oral tradition? If the oral tradition, work with me here a second. I mean, let's suppose, as, as I do, that Paul's right that the Big Bang cosmology is correct. Would Moses have, have if, if you believe Moses is the author of Genesis, would he say in the beginning there was a singularity in the space-time manifold of <laughs> infinite density? <laughs> there was a brief period of inflation after which the four fundamental forces separated. <laughs> so he tells this to the people of Israel and they say, what? So there's that factor. <coughs> the second thing is, if you believe Moses is the author of Genesis, I think that's as, as good an explanation as any. By author, I mean oral tradition. Um, what cosmology did Moses, what, what cosmology was Moses taught when he was schooled? He was schooled by the Egyptians. So what does the Egyptian cosmology look like? Uh, if you look at it, you'll see that it, the, it, it looks a whole lot like Genesis 1. Uh, I think plants are out of order. Everything happened in a single day. But the difference between what Moses says and what the Egyptian cosmology said is the same difference that the Genesis account has, same differences the Genesis account has with all ancient Near East creation stories. And they, they usually say that there's three that it's cosmogony versus theogony, in other words, the creation of the universe rather than the creation of the gods. This wasn't how the gods were created. It's monotheism versus polytheism, and it speaks of a single god who is separate from creation. And then it speaks of creation versus organization, that rather than uh, as an Egyptian cosmology where the god of light speaks and light, is, light brings about uh, a separation of air and water and the first mound of earth appears and all of those things. Uh, in Genesis, God creates something that is separate from him. Uh, I think when we look at the, the, the Hebrew, uh, I don't read Hebrew, I wish I did, but what I do know about the Hebrew is that there are lots of things that suggest it was meant to be symbolic. The first verse has seven words in Hebrew. The second verse has 14. The penultimate section has 35. God is mentioned 35 times. Uh, heaven and earth are each mentioned 21. Uh, do you see a, a pattern here? There's something about seven that appears to be pretty important, and seven days, of course. Uh, now, we could say that maybe that was a memory device that helped them remember how to put it together, but if you're, if you're doing an oral recitation and you're trying to count those in your head, let's see, have I gotten to number 35 yet on God? I better work that one in real quick. Uh, I think in, in, instead it speaks to symbolism and, and what someone, what, what, was, what was attempting, uh, what was being attempted was to try to say, listen, um, the Egyptian cosmology is wrong at a fundamental level. The real cosmology, the one true God created the universe and this is how it's happened. When you get over into Genesis 2, into the life sciences part or whatever, um, again, I think if you read that and then skip over to chapter 12, you can, you can tell the difference in what you're reading. There's an entirely different tenor 
the way things are spoken. When we talk about Adam, Ha-Adam, which is the man, uh, at, at some point the definite article gets dropped. Sometimes it creeps back in. If you look at various English translations, you'll see the word Adam shows up at different times because the translator's trying to figure out whether the story is about the man or about Adam. Uh, I think the reason that ambiguity is there is probably because that was a symbolic story too. The woman is Ava, uh, all living. So you've got a story about the man and all living. Uh, it certainly sounds like it's meant to be symbolic, but what does it say about God? What does it say about the relationship of the man and all living to the creator who was able to walk among them? who had an intimate relationship with them until they chose to disobey. Till they chose with their own volition to, to disobey and break that relationship. And so I think that uh, a, a person's sanctification, a person's salvation does not hinge on a six-day understanding of Genesis. I think your salvation is found over at the other end of the book. Um, I think the, uh, the, the people who attempt concordism where they're trying to make modern science match up with Genesis, I think, are, are, are playing a, a game that the first hearers would not have played. If, if you want to say that, that Genesis is laid out like Big Bang cosmology, and there's certainly people who do, the first people who heard it didn't get that out of it. And so we're to believe that they were idiots that they didn't know what they were talking about. And it's only us enlightened people in the 20th and 21st century who are finally able to understand what God communicated to them. And I, I just don't think that that is the way that God uh, would try to inform his chosen people about his, his desires, his plans. All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to the next question. All right, what does history have to teach us about perceived conflicts between science and Christianity, um, specifically the Earth being the center of the universe? Yeah, I'm the astronomer, okay. Um, <laughs> this is somewhat related to what we've just been dis discussing, and it's got to do with our viewpoint of where we stand in the universe, where things move and all of that. Um, the original view, the original cosmology that was um, uh, regarded by the biblical folks, but also by the pagans and everyone else, there's an awful lot of uh, um, archaeo uh, sites here in the desert southwest that are built around observations of the universe around us you know what are the phases of the moon where does the moon rise at the uh, the various equinoxes where does it rise at the various solstices and those of course are tied intimately to things like planting cycles and the ability of those people to understand how to work the ground and to develop the agriculture necessary to keep their kinfolk fed and alive. And they used the sky, the universe around them that they could observe over the, uh, the course of their lifetimes 
to make predictions. And this is of the earliest examples, if you like, of the predictive discipline that ultimately has become scientific analysis, the use of the scientific method, to take things that you believe you understand to make predictions about what the future or about how things are going to change if you change the circumstances or if you just let time evolve. And that was how things like um, measurement and observation of how the planets moved in the sky. Remember, planets is derived from the word wanderers because they did weird things in the sky. They did retrograde motion and things like that, and people were like, what on earth is going on up there? Um, but the, the idea was um, that, and naturally enough, that we believed we were the best thing out there. Ergo, we must be at the center of it all, right? Um, and that was a natural um, supposition to come to. But it was when um, we started mucking about with mathematics, when the Greeks started to figure out that, mm, well, actually, maybe the Earth might be round here. There's various experiments that were done by different people that uh, figured that out. Our, our sophistication, our, our worldview started to change. And then people started getting the idea that, you know, a lot of the motions that we see in the night sky could be better explained by a system where we weren't necessarily the center of the universe and that the sun actually maybe was uh, a better fixed point around which everything moved. Um, you could make it work. You could build an orrery that did wonderful, funky things, and there are several of those in various museums around the world that show it. But the more elegant, the simpler explanation is usually the... Uh, the, the, the way to go. This is a, a thing that we refer to as Occam's razor. Um, but to answer this particular question, what does history have to teach us about the perceived conflicts between science and Christianity? The famous examples, of course, are from the, from the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, that kind of area, where the authority of the church was being threatened um, because of issues of what was the perceived accepted knowledge at the time. Um, remember that for large parts of that history, the church was the only real organizational structure that was in place. There were kings coming and going and dying and fighting and doing all this kind of stuff, but the church just sort of sat there and went, hey, we're cool, you know. Uh, and, and that was the, the, the root of power, the root of stability, at least in, in Western Europe. But as this level of knowledge, this level of insight into the way the universe works, the way the universe is laid out, progressed, that was to some members of the, of the church that was rooted at the time seen as a threat to the authority of the church. And so there were some very poor decisions made about how to quash that. And that is where a lot of the so-called... Um, annoyance or anger or conflict between religion and science is supposedly tracked back to, but it is more rooted in the fundamental ignorance of what the, uh, the general population was at the time than it was to any real conflict um, theologically, I think. There, there were some issues there, but for the most part, it was rooted in how 
the power of the church was perceived and whether it was being um, challenged or not. And I think that's uh, the history that, that I regard. Well, it looks like we need to uh, draw the evening to the close. We are running out of time. I wanted to conclude with one last question. Um, we strongly encourage here uh, for people to live all of life all for Jesus, to engage in God's world, and to uh, work vocations as acts of love to others. And I wanted to ask uh, just this final question here. Um, if we can... And let me preface this by saying, I think in some ways we need to get past the perceived conflict between science and Christianity so that we can get on with the act of doing good science to bless and serve others um, and to encourage Christians to engage in the sciences for that reason. I wanted to ask Anne and Barry if you could conclude with just telling us how in your particular work you view um, your work as an act of love to your neighbor. Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, and how are you trying to serve and help your neighbor through the work that you do? Go ahead. Well, as my husband puts it, I'm trying to save the planet. <laughs> um, yeah, I work on alternative fuels, guys. <laughs> so, I mean, I do basic science, but um, I I do think that your point is a very valid one. I think we have to think in everything that we do about how it doesn't cause conflict, Quakers, um, <laughs> and, and how it um, glorifies God, and how it brings us closer to other people. Um, and my, my own research is motivated by trying to understand some fundamental questions but science is not just about science. It's about me training students. It's about me developing relationships with my students, with other scientists, with co colleagues, even with the people who are criticizing me. <laughs> um, and it's about trying to understand the world around us in order to treat it better. Oh, I, I, th I think the... Um you know, I don't think Jesus calls us t to the vocations we have with the idea that he thinks we ought to be mediocre at what we do. Uh, I think if he calls you to be a husband or calls you to be a mother or, or calls you to be a scientist or calls you to be uh, a machinist, uh, it's not so that you'll be a mediocre uh, contributor at that level. Uh, I think that uh, in terms of bearing witness to a world that's in desperate need of hope, uh, particularly those who aren't people of faith. I think being the best as you, that you can be at what you feel you're called to do uh, is part of living a life that demands an explanation. Uh, I will say to you, I will say to anyone, I will confess as I do every Sunday that I have failed at that, that I have shamed Christ that I have not lived up to that standard. Um, but uh, because our God is a God of grace, I can move on from that. I can recommit myself to be the best scientist I can be, to be the best father, grandfather now. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish I knew what prompted me to fail. Uh, as my grandson says, no, no. <laughs> no, no is. Uh, you know, I, I don't know why it, it is so hard for me to uh, 
to be that example that I know that, that, that Christ calls me to be. But I really want to encourage you that if you're whatever calling you're in, part of, of living in that calling for Christ is being the best person in that calling you can. As a scientist, I can tell you that being the best scientist you can be is a wake-up call to people who claim, as Peter Atkins does, that you can't be a scientist and be a person of faith. You are a walking contradiction, a walking disproof of their theory. Uh, and so uh, if anything else, uh, if it brings people up short, so they ask, what is it that makes you different? Why is it that you lead your life that way? Uh, I think it's because you are trying to rise to the call of Christ. Well, that's it for tonight. We're grateful that you came, and we're grateful for our panelists. Would you give them a hand once again? Um, that's, that's a top-notch applause right there. That's a grade A applause. Um, we will... Uh, the, our panelists, they've given us some recommended reading that we will post on the blog within the next few days. And the questions that weren't answered tonight, we're going to compile those questions and put together a little uh, book club that's going to do some reading on the topic of science to follow up with this night. If you're interested in that, send me an email. Uh, my email is on the website at redemptionaz.com. Let me close the night in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for all that you reveal to us through the world that you created. And we agree with you. It is good. And God, we thank you that you allow us to explore it, to, to observe it, to uh, engage in your world, to create and to cultivate in your world for the good of others. God, we pray your blessing on the scientists, the panelists up here, that they would be a blessing to many. And we pray that, your, that you would bless the many people in our midst who are intrigued and enthralled with science and want to do it for your glory. Bless them that they would be a blessing to many. And we thank you, God, for your presence here tonight and for the great self-giving love that you've shown us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>